Well, good morning. Good to see you today. Thank you, Justin and Laura. Beautiful job. Thank you to the choir for the great job they did this morning as well. Take your Bibles, if you would, turn to Luke chapter 22. And we'll begin reading in verse 63 in a moment. Many of you may have expected a Christmas message today. It is, after all, the season in which we celebrate the birth of our Savior. But if you want the Christmas message, you're going to have to come back next week or be here for the Christmas Eve service. But if equal, if not of greater importance, was the reason he came. And today we're going to examine one aspect of the purpose of Jesus' coming. As Americans, we are fascinated with trials. And the 20th century held some very remarkable trials. And if we only consider the most recent, we have the trial of Timothy McVeigh for the Oklahoma City bombing in 95, the murder trial of O.J. Simpson in 96, the impeachment trial of Bill Clinton in 99, and the war crimes trial of dictator Saddam Hussein in 06, to name just a few. In some, we felt that justice had been met, in others, not so much. But the trial of Jesus was one of the greatest travesties of justice the world has ever witnessed. From start to finish, the Jewish council's trial of Jesus was a mockery of justice. When we looked at the book of Luke together last week, it is now Tuesday evening in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has finished his agonizing time of prayer and he has returned to his disciples at the front edge of the Garden of Gethsemane when a large group led by Judas arrives. Judas walked up to Jesus and identified him by kissing him. Then immediately they arrested Jesus, they bound him, and they took him back into Jerusalem. Generally speaking, there are two sets of trials, the Jewish trials and the Roman trials. Each trial had several parts, which makes it difficult to keep up with all the legal proceedings since we have to examine all of the gospel accounts in order to get the full story. Luke 22 tells us the story of the Jewish trials. When Luke 22 picks up, Jesus has already endured two trials, as we today would call pre-trial hearings. According to John, Luke is first taken to Annas, the former high priest, and the father along of Caiaphas, the current high priest. When he is finished with his preliminary investigation, he then had Jesus bound and delivered to Caiaphas. Then this is followed by a nighttime meeting with Caiaphas presiding. Luke omits those meetings. Since it was illegal under Jewish regulations to try a prisoner at night, Caiaphas hastily convened an early morning meeting of the Sanhedrin to rubber stamp the verdict of that night's proceedings. So we're going to pick up the story in verse, 20, verse 63. First, we look at the abuse of the captors. 
Verse 63, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy who hit you. And they said many other insulting things to him. Perhaps while the Jewish leaders were waiting for enough of the Sanhedrin to gather to constitute a quorum, the temple guards who held Jesus in custody decided to have a little fun with their prisoner. The temple guards mocked Jesus. Perhaps they imitated his Galilean accent or made fun of the things that he said and the prophecies that he had taught. Matthew relates that they spit in his face and then they made up a little game, a game of blindfolding Jesus and hitting him in the face and mocking him and asking him to prophesy about who hit him. If only they knew he did know. Luke adds, and they said many other insulting things to him. In fact, the men who mocked Jesus were fulfilling the prophecies about the suffering of Christ. Jesus himself prophesied in Luke chapter 18 that he would be mocked and insulted and spit upon. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah prophesied of the suffering of the Messiah when he wrote that he would be stricken, smitten, and afflicted. The important thing to remember as he endured all of those things for you. He endured all of this for you. And what are you willing to endure for him? Second, I want us to see the injustice of the, his trials. Verse 66. And at daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together. And Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. In effect, this is the third part of the Jewish trial. The question posed by the Jewish leaders was, if you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Let me read to you from the translation called The Message. It says, when it was morning, the religious leaders of the people and the high priests and scholars all got together and brought him before their high council. They said, are you the Messiah? And he answered, if I say yes, you won't believe me. If I ask what you meant by your question, you won't answer me. So here's what I have to say. From here on, the Son of Man takes his place at God's right hand, the place of power. And they all said, so you admit your claim to be the Son of God. And Jesus answered, you are the ones who keep saying it. Their question was not genuine. They were not looking for the truth. They were looking for ammunition. They're less interested in the ancient promises of God than they are in getting Jesus to claim that he is the king so that they could get him in trouble with the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Several aspects of Jesus' trial make it illegal. Just a few of which are, no criminal trial could be started at night. The initial proceedings take place here at the high priest's home and not in the temple as prescribed. Jesus was tried without a defense counsel. The defendant was supposed to be presumed innocent 
until proven guilty. Conviction required the testimony of at least two reliable witnesses whose testimony had to agree. They had to affirm that their testimony was true on the basis of direct experience, not hearsay or presumption. They had to identify the precise time and location of the events about which they testified. False witnesses were subject to the same penalty the accused would suffer if convicted. A strong motivation to speak only the truth, especially in capital cases. In capital cases, the death sentence could not be carried out until the third day after it was given, and in the intervening time, the members of the council were to fast. This meant that the trial could not be convened during a feast such as Passover. If a council voted unanimously for conviction in a capital case, the accused was set free because the necessary element of mercy was presumed to be lacking. The point is, they broke all the rules in order to get Jesus condemned by Pilate. Let me try to put this in perspective for you. Let's say the police show up at your house in the middle of the night and they arrest you. You're taken to the house of the judge who sets the time for the trial at 6 a.m. the next morning. Witnesses are hurriedly gathered together and by 6.30 a.m. you have been found guilty and sentenced to die. At noon, you're placed in the electric care and electrocuted. Would you consider that justice? No. Third, I want you to look at the falsehood of the testimonies. Verse 67, Jesus answered, and if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And they all asked, are you then the Son of God? And he replied, you say that I am. If they did not believe his works, that is all the miracles that he had performed, why would they now believe his words? The problem then and now in believing that Jesus is the Christ is not a lack of evidence, but a refusal to accept the evidence that has been given. Some hold that when Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, he was merely identifying with humanity. He also identified himself in so doing with the supernatural figure from the book of Daniel who receives authority from the ancient of days. The title, Son of Man, has a double meaning, that of being human and also, according to Daniel chapter 7, an exalted heavenly one. And Jesus means to communicate both aspects of that. And Jesus was boldly declaring himself to be God. Jesus says, but now, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. He is bringing together two prophecies, Old Testament prophecies. Psalm 110 Verse 1 says, And the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies our footstool. In Daniel chapter 7, which I've already alluded to, 
says, beginning in verse number 13, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is the one that will never be destroyed. When Daniel saw the son of man, he describes him as being a being with mighty power, awesome majesty, and godlike authority. Jesus claims that Daniel's prophecy is speaking of him. With his statement to the Sanhedrin that from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. It was a prophecy of his heavenly exaltation to the right hand of God. It spoke of his exercising ultimate judgment. Jesus, with his statement from now on, implies that this is going to happen very soon. In fact, that his elevation to glory has already begun. At his ascension, he declared, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. Unless you think that I'm reading too much into this passage, notice that the Jewish religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was claiming, and they didn't like it a bit. And now, even now, they were more frustrated because they asked, Are you then the Son of God? Jesus answers their question by saying, you say that I am. Now, it's easy for us to miss the true significance of what Jesus said here. As we noted in the last message, this statement, I am, is rooted in what God tells Moses to tell his people, I am has sent you. And from that time forward, Jews associated the phrase as a claim of deity. When Jesus declares in John chapter 8 and verse 58 that before Abraham was, I am, he absolutely shocked his listeners, for they understood that he was saying, I am God. Here again, Jesus is claiming that he is divine. Fourth, I want you to see the condemnation of the court, verse 71. And then they said, why do we need any more testimony what we, we have heard it from his own lips? Matthew tells us in his account at this point, the high priest Caiaphas tore his robes and he accused Jesus of blasphemy, a charge worthy of death. The religious leadership recognized that Jesus has essentially claimed to be God. And in their minds, this was blasphemy and, and was punishable by death. The problem, of course, is that claiming to be God is only blasphemy when you aren't actually God. As Daryl Bach put it, either, God is, either Jesus is right or the Jewish council is right Jesus' claim is either blasphemy or deadly, serious truth. The religious leadership was not concerned about really who Jesus was. They just wanted to get rid of him. 
Although they had found them guilty of a crime punishable by death, they had a problem. The Jews were not allowed to carry out capital punishment. Only Romans could do that. And they're not going to be concerned about a charge of blasphemy. So the leaders had to come up with something that the Romans would think was worthy of death. So they added a second charge, sedition. And they asked Pilate, the Roman governor, to execute Jesus on a charge of sedition or treason. There are still people in our world who deny that Jesus ever declared himself to be God. But we must never forget that on the night before he died, that is exactly what Jesus did. He declared that he was God. Let me close this morning with a story. There was an archbishop of Paris who gave a very famous sermon at Notre Dame Cathedral. In the course of his sermon, he told a story about a group of unbelieving boys who wandered into the cathedral. The boys decided to have a bit of fun and they declared to each other and dared each other to go forward and confess a made-up list of terrible sins to the priest in the confessional. One of them, a Jewish boy named Aaron, took up the challenge. So he marched into the confessional, but the priest immediately knew what he was up to. And without showing any sign of annoyance, he gave him a a simple penance. Go up to the altar and kneel and say, Jesus, I know you died for me, but I don't give a damn. Hmm, easier than I thought, he said. So he went up to the altar to do his penance. Jesus, I know you died for me, but I don't give a damn. Jesus, I know you died for me, he declared the second time, but I don't give a damn. Jesus, I know you died for me, but I don't give, but he couldn't say it a third time. He just couldn't go on. And the archbishop continuing his sermon, said to the congregation, I am that boy. While I disagree with confessions to priests and penance and crucifix statues, there is an application for us in the story. As we celebrate the birth of our Savior, let's not forget the suffering he endured for our sake and say in our hearts, you did all of this for me. How can I fail to live for you? Despite all the evil motives of those who tried Jesus, the fact of the matter is, Jesus is the Christ. Luke records that the angels told the shepherds, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that our lives would reflect our faith. I pray that as we look at what you have done for us, the sacrifices that have been made, that Jesus came and took our place on the cross of Calvary, that none of us would ever say in our hearts, I know what you did for me, but I just don't care.
But everyone who has never placed their faith in you is doing that very thing. They're saying, I know that you took my place. I know that you paid for my sin, but I just don't care. Father, help us to look into our hearts and lives. If there's one that has never placed their faith in you, then I pray right here this morning that they might. If there are those here today who know that they're saved, but they're just really not living like it, then I pray that you would convict us and lead us to the place that we repent of our sins and we call upon you. Lord, whatever it is you want to do in our hearts and lives, we want to give you this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.